Hi friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to keep you up on the literature, and so we have the latest research just for you in little spoon feeds. It's perfect. Now let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to be covering. First off, a few points about the highlights from the update of the surviving sepsis guidelines. Then, first pass success with a bougie, or perhaps with the stylet. After that, lest we forget Patch Adams, let's revisit humor in medicine. Fourth, the time-old question, who's actually the smartest person in the room? And then finally, a quick word from our sponsors. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We don't really have sponsors so much. Um, but Clay Smith always does something artsy for Christmas, and so we've got something special for you. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the Whovian, Aaron Lacey, Rebecca White, and Clay Smith. Now, without further ado, I bring you the first article, which was titled Surviving Sepsis Campaign, International Guidelines for Management of Sepsis and Septic Shock 2021 out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. All right, all right, all right. So these guidelines have been torn apart a few times before. In the perspective of some, they are not well reflecting the evidence and how some prefer to practice. But, love them or hate them, lots of people count on these surviving sepsis guidelines for guidance. So let's see what they did that's new. The recommendation for a 30 ml per kg fluid bolus has been downgraded to just being suggested rather than recommended. Because, let's be frank, there isn't much evidence to back it up. And these days we know that not all patients necessarily even need a fluid bolus at all. Now, next, although I'm sure this fight isn't over, balanced fluids are now the suggested fluid. This is a change from 2016, when they were pretty equivocal about balanced fluids versus normal saline. The next point, which hopefully everyone is already on top of, is to use pressors through a peripheral IV until central access is obtained. Now, and this next one, I can't believe I even have to say this, but really, anything related to IV vitamin C is just a no-go. Just don't do it. <laughs> Seriously, don't. Um, this next point is interesting, though. Uh, they're favoring the use of steroids and septic shock with ongoing vasopressor requirements. In 2016, the advice was not to give steroids if pressors or fluids were enough to reach your target map. But now they recommend steroids if there's ongoing pressors which are needed. So if you haven't gotten off of the pressors, then you can consider steroids. They justified this with two-sided trials. The adrenal trial, which showed that steroids lowered the number of ICU days, but it caused more side effects. And they also cited the approaches trial, which showed lower 90-day mortality. If you're wondering why is that approaches that way, you just have to read the title of this trial. Anyways, lastly, last update from this update, they highlight the importance of post-ICU care. Remember that many patients are severely impacted by their stays in the ICU, physically, cognitively, emotionally. So remember, you really have to take care of those patients, especially in terms of delirium, sedation, and mobility. In a Spoonful 2021 brings us new surviving sepsis guidelines, and those are some of the major changes. After that, we have the second article, titled Effect of Use of a Bougie versus Endotracheal Tube with Stylet on Successful Intubation on the First Attempt Among Critically Ill Patients Undergoing Tracheal Intubation, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. Hey, you know, now we haven't done a bougie paper in a while. It's usually me just telling you all about video laryngoscopy and how that's the way to go. 
Um, but that didn't used to be the case. A few years ago, uh, it was all bougie, bougie, bougie. And this is in large part due to studies like the BEAM trial, which showed substantially improved first-pass success when bougie was used on the first try. That was a single-center study, though. Let's dream bigger, shall we? This study was a multi-center emergency department and ICU randomized control trial on the rates of first-pass success, where patients were randomized to either a bougie first or endotracheal tube with a stylet when undergoing RSI. They had about 1,100 patients total. Here, there was no difference in the first-pass success rates, a little over 80% in each group. There was also no difference in the secondary outcome of severe hypoxemia. 80% first-pass success, it's not amazing, but this trial had a variety of providers, including 60% of them being residents, and also including staff from the ER and the ICU. Even if you subgroup the data by provider, location, or patient characteristics, there was still no differences. Why didn't this show as big an improvement as we've seen previously? Well, here they had a lot of unique operators doing the intubations, and the enrolling sites were not used to a bougie first approach, and so were less practiced with it. So, like I've said before, odds are the best first pass approach is going to be whatever you're best at. But in a pinch, you're going to want to be familiar with a bougie, so using it every now and then would be good practice. In a spoonful, a multi-center RCT including emergency department and ICU intubations, Intubation first-pass success was not improved by using a bougie compared to a stylet. Then we have the third article. A pediatrician, a resident, and a medical student walk into a clinic. The role of humor in clinical teaching, out of the Journal of Pediatrics. Now, last week I mentioned that humor was a healthy coping mechanism for stress. This is true, but of course humor can also get you into trouble if you're not using it right. When used right... It can help engage, it can help build rapport with your patients and your learners, and it can also reduce stress. This article lays out some easy ground rules to make sure that you don't get in trouble when using humor. The article actually uses two frameworks that you can use to kind of classify your humor, and we'll cover both. First, let's measure humor along two dimensions. From positive to negative, as in are you using it to lift someone up or put someone down, and the other axis is, is it about yourself or is your humor about others? You know, referring to the subject of your humor. The best humor to use is positive humor about others. They call this affiliative. If you're joking about yourself, you can either be positive or negative. Both of those are okay. Really, the one to avoid is negative humor about others, which the authors call aggressive. Don't be aggressive with colleagues or patients. Sounds pretty obvious when you put it that way. The other framework focuses more on the purpose of the humor. Is it to promote superiority, incongruity, or relief? Superiority kind of speaks for itself. The microaggressions usually fall in this category. Hopefully, we all know those are bad. Incongruity humor is usually to provide some kind of contradiction, and it's generally positive. Uh, the article actually provided a pun uh, to give an example of this, and I'll read it now. Never upset a pediatrician. They have very little patience. <laughs> and the last type of humor is relief. That's like using sarcasm or irony. I was a little bit sad to read um, here that they recommend avoiding this type of humor in the learning environment as it's very subjective. I'm going to say that's, that's going to be tough to do for me. Ultimately, just try to use humor that makes everyone feel comfortable. It's like language. It's really not about you. It's about the listener. In a spoonful, when wielded properly, humor can engage learners lower anxiety, and build bonds. Use it, but use it wisely.
After that, we have the fourth article, which is titled, It's Not Rocket Science, and It's Not Brain Surgery, It's a Walk in the Park, a prospective comparative study out of the BMJ. Now, classically, as you're all probably aware, there's always been something of a debate between what work is actually the hardest. In the modern day, of course, we know that emergency medicine is the most cognitive task you could possibly perform. But a close second is either going to go to neurosurgery or rocket scientists. The BMJ's Christmas edition put in some work to put the question to rest once and for all. Which is really the more appropriate disparaging remark? Pfft, that's not rocket science. Or, well, that's not brain surgery. The authors compared the performance of aerospace engineers and neuroscientists who all took the Cognitron's Great British Intelligent Test. Now, it's not a game show, I swear that's a real thing. Unfortunately, there wasn't a clear answer. Each seems to have their own merits. If you're looking for problem solving, then neurosurgeons won. If you value mental manipulation and attention, though, then you should be looking for a rocket scientist. Most of the time, though, you're not going to actually be comparing rocket scientists to neurosurgeons, though. So if we compare neurosurgeons to just the general population, we see that they have better problem solving, but they actually have slower memory recall. And you'll know this is true if you've ever spoken to a brain surgeon, they probably don't remember your name. No, no, I'm kidding. But really, I think the real test of intelligence ought to be something more practical. Like MacGyvering an emergency harness out of duct tape in order to perform an upside-down intubation and resuscitation bay that's filled with too many people and too many patients, and let's throw COVID in there just for good measure. See who is best at that? I bet you it's an emergency doctor. In a spoonful, we don't actually have a definite answer, unfortunately. But maybe we shouldn't be comparing people to, you know, neurosurgeons or rocket scientists at all. When you think something's easy, just say, hey, that's a walk in the park. Fifth, we don't actually have an article fifth. In keeping with journal feed tradition, our very own Clay Smith lets loose his creative side with a reflective and impactful piece of writing. Here I present to you that piece of writing read by our very own editor-in-chief, Clay Smith. The coach. Like an evil fraternity, each in sequence, Alpha, Beta, Delta, Omicron. Leaving sadness and sickness with each letter. We're all masked like bandits on the off chance our breath could unwittingly steal life from a vulnerable passerby. First, do no harm. Is it possible I could harm you with the breath that is to me life? I'd never want to hurt you, but I miss your face. When will I see your face, your full face? When will you see mine? When can we breathe without fear? When can our children run free? When can the old man hold his granddaughter and kiss her soft cheeks? I won't forget your face. No surgical mask. It's an oxygen mask, full blast. It isn't fear. It's concern mixed with resolve. Your face is deep brown, with lines that point to the sun. You're strong, a coach, teaching young men to play hard, to play fair. How unfair this. It may have been concentration, just trying to get enough breath. You're tired, and tiring more. But you're strangely lucid, strangely calm. No one at your age could keep this up for long. We talk around the tight mask, now barely supporting each sip of air. I tell you, we'll make you sleep. 
and you'll wake again in the tower above us. Hopefully, I whisper under my breath. We prepare to breathe for you. My heart races. One mistake and your once strong body will be starved of breath. Ashen. Drugs flow in. Your breath stops. Oh, the relief. The tube passes with ease. I cry a little, hidden behind my mask. You're safe, at least for now, as the machine takes over the fight. I feel tired as I peel off my mask and walk to my car in the cold blackness, feeling the wind on my face. Is that your breath? Icy, stinging my flushed cheeks. Giver of breath, save us. It's your name. How long? Please, no more letters. What if we reach Omega? Will you still be with us? All right, a bit of a change of tone. Let's get back to me. I sound too excited now. Let's do the wrap up. Let's see what we learned today. Uh, first of all, we reviewed a few changes to the new surviving sepsis guidelines, and, and it was nice. It felt like a summary of the year according to Journal Feed because we actually cover a lot of the articles that inform these updates. Second, no one can fault you for using a bougie on your first attempt, but this trial showed no benefit to it either. Third, many say humor is the best medicine, but we know that's not true. It's ketamine, guys. Come on, it's obviously ketamine. Fourth, the biggest brain award goes to no one. Brain surgeons and rocket scientists each have their own merits. Now then, you've earned them. We offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalv.org. Links to all the articles summarized can be found there as well. And if you haven't already, be sure to sign up for our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Happy holidays, everyone, and thank you. <laughs>